0: You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on these podcasts. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker. We have Zach Ehrens, co-founder and partner at Metaprop VC. And today we'll talk about PropTech. How did coronavirus affect it? What's going on in prop tech? How did the field react? And what should founders in that field do now that COVID is kind of weakening down, uh, winding down? Winding down? <laughs> I'll cut that part out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Zach, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Prop.
1: Thank you so much, Constantine. It's a pleasure to be on Fundraising Radio with you today. Um, A little bit of background on me. I'm born and raised in New York City. Um, I went to college at Brown University. uh, And then after that, I did a stint in investment banking and then got uh, an opportunity uh, to do a startup in the walking tour space. We were doing online and offline walking tours of New York City. I became a walking tour guide. I've actually led over 300 uh, in-person walking tours uh, of our great city of New York. So happy, I know our <laughs> listeners want to hear about other things today, but uh, if you ever want to, <laughs> I occasionally come out of retirement uh, for my nearest and dearest friends, uh, and I'll do a tour uh, here and there. Uh, after that experience, I went and uh, got into the venture capital world uh, and the real estate world in a pretty circuitous way. I was frustrated by my own lack of ability as an entrepreneur to build technology products uh, for mobile walking tours effectively. And so instead of uh, building the technology myself, one day I decided I was going to stop funneling money uh, into my own dev team. And I was going to start angel investing in other similar companies and I could lend some of my expertise and enthusiasm in the in the travel and tourism space to that. So that's how I caught the bug for the very dangerous profession of angel investing. It's not really a profession; it's something one does on the side. Um, I was lucky enough at the time. I, I didn't have kids yet. I was making a little bit of money from the tours, and I also had some family money to invest into these companies. And I really caught the bug for for the early stage venture and tech space. This was around two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Uh, I realized though that uh, in order to up my game, I, I uh, should probably get some more credentials. So I decided to go to Columbia Business School. Uh, that was in uh, 2011. Nice. Um, and simultaneous to that, uh, I was—I uh, got my dad, who's been a real estate developer uh, for many decades, uh, had a hunch that the uh, community engagement process that's that is required uh, when a real estate developer buys a site and looks to entitle the land to develop a building. That that was going to move online, and uh, so he brought me into into his firm to do some content marketing, some social media marketing, um, which at the time, this was back in 2010, that was considered uh, quite novel um, and and frankly quite strange. We got a lot of pushback on on wanting to do it from some of our uh-huh. uh, um, more traditional consultants. But uh, that was my exposure to the real estate business, and 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 sort of once I got involved in the real estate business, I also caught that bug. So I was simultaneously working in a real estate company going to business school and dabbling in the venture capital and angel investing world primarily investing in 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 mobile technology startups and i did an internship while i was at business school for a fund uh called eniac ventures and so all of these sort of seemingly unconnected things were were going on in my career simultaneously uh, and i was working pretty pretty hard doing doing being a student and then and then having two kind of part-time jobs so, I was lucky enough to be in a class uh, with a gentleman named Stu Elman, uh, who was the teacher, and, and he's one of the founding partners of RRE Ventures, which is one of the uh, oldest and, and, and most storied venture funds uh, here in New York City. And he, he looked at me and he's like, what are you doing? Uh, real estate technology is going to be really big. I, I have a hunch it is. My hunches are typically right on tech trends. And you have this unique opportunity uh, to sort of wedge in there and really uh, position yourself as an expert, and he said, "I'm planning on making some investments in the space, and would love to get your uh, your thoughts on the industry." So I, I did a research report for him, and that was my first uh, eye opener into prop tech. Uh, and then also, I was I was sort of bemoaning uh, in my day job for for Millennium Partners, which is the real estate company I was working for. I was bemoaning how inefficient some of the the processes were. And thinking that uh, there 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 should be a way to uh, do them faster, better, and cheaper using uh, uh, software, purpose-built software. So those that all sort of coalesced and gelled together. When he told me I really should be focusing on prop tech, uh, what we now call prop tech. What uh, uh, back then we had there there wasn't really a coined term or an ecosystem for it. Um, And so I went very aggressively. I sort of took that advice and and I went very aggressively into uh, that sector. I I made a bunch of angel investments uh, uh, in the sector I sort of stopped uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with my interest in um, in uh, in the mobile uh, uh tourism type of businesses that I was investing in and I became the most active angel investor uh, in the world uh, in in the space and uh fast forward nice. to uh 2015 active in terms of number of deals not in terms of capital mm-hmm. I, was right. putting out. I was putting in between you know usually 25 or 50 K Checks into these companies and um, I, uh, I became very passionate about it and, and sort of what what it sort of consumed uh, 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 quite a bit of my, my headspace. In 2015, uh, I met a guy named Aaron block who had just sold his um, cross border, Russia, US e-commerce company called Beirut and found himself back in the New York area looking for something to do. And he had done that business, but interesting uh, uh, for me also was that he had been a partner previously Christian Wakefield, which is one of the biggest real estate brokerage and services firms in the world. So he also had this sort of uh, bifurcated background in both real estate and technology. We decided to get together and essentially institutionalize my angel practice and go out and uh, and, and that was the genesis of Metaprop. And so that, that those conversations started happening toward the end of 2014, and we officially launched the business in 2000. 15. Um, originally launched an accelerator. Uh, now we have a, a, a venture capital funds uh, management business, and that's sort of our core business. But we work a lot. Our, our LPs represent 15 billion square feet uh, of right. real estate uh, owned and managed uh, around the world. And uh, and uh, we we also uh, do a lot of uh, innovation type consulting and advisory services for them, giving them access, access insights and execution. Uh, into the broader prop tech space, uh, uh, both including our the Metaprop portfolio, which is now 80 uh, prop tech startups, um, as well as the broader sort of ecosystem of the 8,000 uh, companies that we now consider to be prop tech or architecture, engineering, construction, AEC tech uh, that we now see globally uh, uh, in the year 2020.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a really, Big portfolio, I mean, over 80 companies, that's that's insane. That's great work. And first question that I'm going to ask you here is uh, what's the uh, one you instance institution God damn it. That's my Russian part coming in. But basically, when you've created that, instead of becoming just an angel, you became a an institutional investor. What did change in terms of your investment thesis? So did you start investing bigger checks or are you still keeping it low? So like 25, 50K?
1: Uh, with our, we we started small in terms of check size. I think we had a more institutionalized process in that uh, when I was angel investing, um, the only people I had to report to were myself and my father. So the the reporting we didn't have to do sort of the the robust uh, level of reporting mm-hmm. uh, that we now do for our LPS. Um, we also didn't uh, nowadays, you know. Um, earlier in the funds life, we didn't do stuff like this, but fast forward to now, you know, I sit on a bunch of boards of these companies. Um, In some cases we are the largest or the second largest uh, investor, you know, we're we're sort of the first person or the second person that these founders call, Um, you know, keep in mind when I was an angel investor, I I had another full-time job, which was uh, um, doing property management, development work, and acquisitions and dispositions for millennium partners, which which is a, uh, um, a national uh, urban infill large scale mixed use developer. Uh, so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have the time um, to run these sort of robust processes with, with the founders. I was more, I was sort of the only real estate person other than them that was involved. So when there were specific introductions, I was very helpful making those. I was very helpful. Giving insight into the product because in many cases I was an early customer as well of these products. I was an early adopter. I would use it uh, at Millennium and my colleagues. We would all use them and we would all provide feedback. So, so the role is definitely very different um, as a VC versus as a as an angel. And and you know there there are obviously pros and cons um, to both. You know uh, the 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 pro. Of being a VC is is you really are 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 in the driver's seat in in or certainly in the in the front passenger seat, um, and you're really getting your hands dirty. You're helping the companies recruit. You're helping the companies with uh, go to market strategy, uh, sales strategy, distribution strategy. um, You know, whereas as an a but but also the the negative is if a company is failing, for example, you're the one who has to shut it down. Uh, you're the one who asked to, you know. Uh, I'll never forget it. My my good friend Elliot Durbin, uh, who's a, a a very successful VC and uh, general partner of a fund called Bold Start. He said he once had a an MBA uh, student ask him, "Well, what's it like to be a VC?" And he recounted a story of having to call this woman and 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 tell her she had to go on Cobra and and she was sick and and she was a single mom and it was just one of the worst sort of conversations he's ever had to have in his uh. life and. um you know, you never have to do that as an angel, right? As an angel, right. you're the you're you're the smallest check on the cap table. You maybe own you know 25 basis points of the company, and you get to participate in all the upside success, uh, but frankly, none of the downside. You you lose your money, yes, if it if things implode, but you're not the one calling the bankruptcy lawyers to set up that type of process whereas if you're the vc unfortunately you know that 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 is the work uh that you sometimes have to do so you know there 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 are but 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 when you're successful and when you can really make an impact it's a it's a really really wonderful uh thing to to form these really long-term relationships with founders you know i i, I have relationships with founders that now go back multiple companies so you know i backed them when i was an angel in my first company and then the second company they started happened to be a prop tech company and they came to me in my Metaprop capacity and I was lucky enough to to have the privilege to, to back them again. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really in it for the for the long haul and I want to be in this de- business for many more decades. So working with entrepreneurs is an incredible privilege and uh, one I, I, I take very seriously.
0: Right, right. And it's super awesome to hear, you know, those relationships that go like multiple companies back. It's always so... You know, interesting for me to hear how you know, you've know you known the founder for I know, 20 plus years and you've been like their first investor in their first company and now three exits later, you're best friends. That's awesome. I think that's like the best part of being a VC. Um, but let's move on to the next question that I really want to ask you after I've heard that you had like over 80 portfolio companies. How do you source your deals? How do you manage to find so many good companies to invest in?
1: Yeah, we have a very um, programmatic, uh, data-driven approach to sourcing uh, internally at MetaProp. Um, Every week we have a dashboard that my colleague Brian updates, and it's kind of like a competition. It looks, you know, visually like like a horse race, Um, and you know, we kind of have you know friendly competition. (laughs) Oh, you know, I source more than you uh, this week, you know, kind of stuff. Um, I've never you know when we started the firm, I was the primary source of deal flow and and I'm very happy to report that I haven't won uh, that horse race uh, at in two years. um so so the sourcing now happens um, you know, uh, from multiple uh, points within our within our firm, and and I'll walk you through how we do it. Um so typically, the best deals come from other entrepreneurs. Um so you mm-hmm. know entrepreneurs tend to hang out with other entrepreneurs um, as opposed to other people because there are very few people who sort of understand the plight of an entrepreneur and the quotidian misery of entrepreneurship in in the same way that an entrepreneur can so historically my best deals have always come from entrepreneurs in my network and i have hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of those entrepreneurs in my network um also as it relates to like relationships within companies you know i've been lucky enough to back some companies that um that have grown quite large, right? And when a company grows to 100 employees, typically the people who were around from the beginning but aren't on the founding team, those people, once they vest, they get a little antsy and they want to start their own thing. So um, those tend to be really good sources of of deal flow as well, just because we've had these um, these relationships, you know, up and down uh, these prop tech companies uh, for years. Um, another good source uh, for us for deal flow is other venture capitalists. Um, we trade deals with venture capitalists all the time um, because we are a strategic real estate partner, and we have a flexible um, ownership target. Uh, in the bulk of the deals we do, uh, we are lucky enough to sort of secure allocations alongside, you know, generalist sort of Silicon Valley VCs, um, and you know some. Um, some of our competitors sometimes actually have reason to to, to bring us into a deal and, and carve out an allocation um, if we're going to be strategic. So, uh, you know, there's the generalist funds. They do product, uh, they do recruiting for technical talent very well. They, they they do a lot of things that 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 we can't do very well. Uh, they want us to to handle the real estate sales and distribution uh, and real estate recruiting stuff for them. Um, so they they typically will will cut us into deals um so that's another great source um you know as i mentioned our lps are all owners operators and service providers uh of real estate and to real estate so they are using a lot of prop tech as uh, customers Uh, so for example i just got a lead Mm -hmm. before i got on uh, this interview i just got a lead from one of our lps uh who said you know our our senior housing group is using this technology provider uh, they put it into one building, they're really digging it. You should take a look at it, investing. It. Um, so that's another good source of deal flow. And then another thing we do is we outbound. Like, you know, even though we we think we built a good brand and and you know, everyone should think about Metaprop when they have a prop tech company looking for financing, you know, there are deals um, that we don't get to do. And in, in those cases, when we read about them, we will um, send a cold email. To that entrepreneur and see if we can get a dialogue started. And we source a lot of deals that way. And you know, as I mentioned, I'm in this for the long term. So if I can't get into your previous round, like my view is, let's start a relationship. And uh, maybe I'll be able to get into your next round, or maybe I'll be able to get into your next company, or maybe you never want to do business with me directly, but you know, your best friend has a prop tech company as well, and and they want to uh, uh, do something with us. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't view this business at like zero sum. I, I, and and so, because I have that, that approach, um, you know, we, we have a lot of conversations going with entrepreneurs at all different stages. Um, and, and that's a good way to be in the flow. So, so those are the primary uh, um, uh, ways we do it, I would say. And then we have, you know, a certain amount of internal theses and, 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 types of companies that we're looking for and then mm-hmm. and then we also are are open to you know ideas that we hadn't thought of if they're if they're being executed by a compelling entrepreneur you know with a great product
0: right right and here i think it's time for us to move on to actually talking about prop tech because in the beginning of the episode i promised that we'll talk about prop tech and how it reacted to the COVID. And let's talk about that now. What do you think is going on in PropTech right now, especially in those early stage startups that work in this field?
1: Yeah, so um, we define PropTech as any type of technology that can be software as a service, that can be tech enabled marketplace, that can be sensors, that can be robotics, that can be 3D printing, it can be computer vision, AI, uh, ML, um, that relates to any process within any real estate transaction from dirt to disposition of that asset. All the way down into the boiler room and all the way up to the boardroom where that assets being managed. And then across all different asset types. So, 1 of the really fascinating things about PropTech is. The type of technology you may use to run your hotel. Is quite different than what you would use to run a portfolio of, let's say, 20 single family homes. That you're maybe renting out. So that's how we sort of slice and dice the market. So, as prop tech has been impacted by COVID, one has to look at it on a case by case basis and an asset type by asset type basis. So, what I mean by that is there are a handful of asset types who have been more impaired than others as a result of COVID. Uh, the mm-hmm. most impaired would be uh, hotels uh, and retail. The second most probably office, no one really knows uh, what's going on with office, um, followed by multifamily, um, which uh, uh, some of it has has some issues and some of it's fine. And then single family and logistics warehousing, which are both on fire. So those businesses in a good way, those those businesses are better than they've ever been. Uh, because of COVID, right? So from what we've seen, if you're a a prop tech company, your software company, and you're selling into a portfolio of hotels or a portfolio of say retail malls or high street uh, retail locations in cities, um, chances are your customer is still pretty busy putting out fires and trying to figure out how to reopen and trying to figure out how to collect rent. That even if they do want it, they're probably not engaging with you about your product. Um, So, you know, a lot of those companies are, are struggling. You know, what we tell them is essentially sort of hibernate for a little bit. Focus on your technology and and when, you know, whatever the new paradigm is for those asset types post emergence sort of consolidate your hegemony as it relates to your technical excellence. And then you can emerge, you know, even stronger, provided you know you can you can have the capital to survive uh, on the equity side. Um, you know, other categories this space is white hot right now. So we do a lot in construction tech, for example, and we've had a thesis for many years that you know computer vision, sensors, AI, automation uh, would be relevant to general contractors, subcontractors, and developers. Uh, on a construction site Um, and we're now just seeing that play out. We're seeing construction sites digitized at a rate uh, that I frankly would have would have said was unbelievable uh, at the beginning of this year. So, some companies are accelerating through this thing at rapid clips, some companies are hibernating and some companies it's kind of business as usual. Um, and so it depends. So, so so it's, it's impossible to say, you know, the prop tech space is better or worse because it is highly idiosyncratic. And it's highly situational, I would say. So that's, uh, and we've given um, a lot of these presentations around around town. uh, I gave 1 I just guest lectured um, in my friend's uh, class at Wharton and and gave this very presentation and we sort of show a quadrant um, of you know companies that were very much in 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 vogue and have sort of slowed down as they figure out what their business model is going to be. You know, a lot of these alternative accommodation type companies. Um, then we look at businesses that 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 uh, there was interest in, but now they're accelerating. And then there are a few business uh, uh, types we don't have a lot of exposure to them that were not even considered remotely mainstream pre-COVID, but now are. You know things like thermal thermal scanning, uh, things like elevator queuing. Uh, 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 I'm not uh, elevator queuing sort of software technology. Um, things like robotic cleaning solutions. You know those are things we we would that would pop up from time to time, but we're never really we're we're still considered kind of on the fringes, and and those are now sort of. In the mainstream, but but you know our 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 preference is to invest in in theses that we always had, you know, which is essentially the digitization of real estate, and then pick the companies that are able to execute and accelerate their sales through this. And and you know we're lucky enough that quite a few of our companies have experienced um, rapid growth uh, throughout COVID uh, because of that digitization. You know, I always I always joke about it. it's like the the the, the 80 year old uh, professional plumber who now has to go on Zoom for the first time personally because that's the only way they're gonna see their grandkids. When they start doing their job again, they're gonna be a lot more inclined to adopt purpose-built software. They're just less scared of it because Mm -hmm. they've had to use it so much recently in their personal lives. Right. So they get back to work and they're just like, "Oh my God, you're telling me like I can have, you know, my invoices paid on on online. Like I don't have to, you know, carbon paper this. And you're telling me I can do my accounting without Navicus. Like, let's go, let's do it." Right, right. So actually, here I want to interrupt you real
0: quick and ask you about a follow up on what you just said, which is sales. Uh, that's a pretty big question for me from one of those early stage startup founders, you know, to have like a tiny, tiny, tiny budget. And the question is, do I, should I even spend time trying to hire someone fully commission based? So can you actually hire someone in prop tech who is going to be as a salesman working on commission only?
1: You can, um, I it's, it's. It's rarely successful, you know, uh, 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 the best sort of strategies are focused on from what I've seen an integrative approach and an account based marketing approach where you're hitting these companies, your your potential customers from the top to the bottom of the organization. And that requires a lot of collaboration between sort of the sales team and the marketing team Um, and that level of collaboration doesn't usually happen, especially when everyone's working remote it can be very hard to get that level of collaboration if someone is just a sort of commission-based uh, worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think people should be hiring anybody until they figure out what their sales process is gonna be. Uh, and we, what we do, uh, we go into companies, uh, we bring in consultants, uh, we do a sales audit. That audit determines what type of sales team The company needs, right? And in some cases, they want to build a boiler room of people cold calling. In some cases, they want to have someone just doing drip campaigns. In some cases, they just want to be doing more consumer type marketing on Facebook and Instagram. And in some cases, you want to do all three. And so, until we have that data, we we don't even talk about getting a budget together, right? Once we have that audit done, then we do a budget, and we see what the company can afford, and we prioritize. So I think you're, if you're starting with the question, should I hire someone commission-based or, you know, a combination of base and, and commission, you're actually asking the wrong question. Because at first you need to actually answer like how you should be selling, and you really need your core team doing the sales to figure that out. Alongside you know someone like us or a consultant to watch how you're doing it and suggest ways to tweak it. and that's basically what the sales audit is. You want to hire an SDR to do your sales audit because you're 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 just you know you want to test out SDRs, right and like say, okay, we're you're gonna call you know these ten companies with this script right now right but that's part of your audit process and yeah you know you probably don't pay those people on commission you probably give them a little bit of a stipend uh and then you know promise them that 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 if they're successful you'll you'll sort of hire them full time and those people can tend to pay for themselves quickly if your if your sales engine works so that's sort of been our approach and and you know it's taken a long time to get where we are but that's what we that's that's what we do uh, for our founders uh, at this point. And, uh, and we do it, we do it really well. Uh, and, and we, um, we actually enjoy it. We are actually intellectually interested in it. And we believe we're at the cutting edge of this, this account based marketing approach. Um, so, yeah, I, I, uh, the, the commission or salary question is uh is, is is really the third or fourth question one should be asking when it relates to jump-starting their sales uh, engine.
0: Right, and quick question before we're gonna wrap up, which is about the core team making sales. What uh channels would you recommend to those you know core team members to use to find their you know very first customers is it going to be a cold outreach on LinkedIn is it going to be trying to find their email addresses and being them on
1: e- on uh,
0: Gmail or what's that going to be
1: It totally depends on what you're selling so I have a company that got all of its first customers and this is a B2B company okay this is a there's a company that does it's super boring, super prosaic. They do accounts payable management uh, with software for multifamily property managers, okay? They got all of their first customers creating really funny memes and, and advertising on Facebook and Instagram, <laughs> okay? And so the that concept that a company can now, Advertise like that in a B two B capacity. I would have said no way even five years ago. I would have said that's an insane uh-huh. strategy. You? but that strategy works, but it doesn't work for everybody. So I don't, I don't recommend that everybody does it. But if you have a business that looks like that with that sort of level of contract value, that could be a good channel. For other types of businesses, you know, if you're selling a, a, a pretty complex to understand product and you're selling a potentially big contract value you know things in the in the in the in the six and seven figures uh what you ultimately want to be doing then you got to pick up the phone (laughs) if you're in the real estate business or the construction business the best channel we've seen is picking up the phone you got to do all the other stuff too you got to serve them up with a pixel on facebook you gotta you gotta do email drip campaigns you got to hit them you got to meet them at the conferences Right. You gotta do all of that stuff. But but we've seen the most success always starts with a phone call. And then you want to get somebody on a demo. You gotta get somebody if your product's good, (laughs) right? If your product's garbage, (laughs) you probably don't want to demo it until it's good. But if you have a product that you think is better than whatever this person is using, or or in some cases they're not using anything, you know, other than than you know Excel or whatever then you got to get them on a demo. And the easiest way to get somebody on a demo is to call them up on the phone.
0: Right. Right. That's true. And phone calls are scary. I've personally experienced that problem with one of my first companies and it was literally the worst experience. I mean, not the worst experience in my life, but it was really close to that. So I would recommend you practicing for free. Uh, We've discussed that actually on another podcast here on fundraising radio Uh, and the advice from my speaker was go and work as a uh, not a freelancer but how do you call those volunteer volunteer so like you can work on
1: uh some yeah phone banking holy. yeah like raising money yeah. for a yep. yeah political candidate or exactly. something that's very good advice that's very very good advice Yeah. work on your script you know i um it's very hard i did some political phone banking and i would call people and i would i would i would choke up like I couldn't follow the script. And and then I would also like, I would get sort of in my own head and get get arrogant. And I was like, I don't need to follow this script. Like the <laughs> nice thing about the candidates better, you know, and then and then I would do even worse, you know. And so it's it's <laughs> right. it's pretty it's a pretty humbling uh, experience. And so I think that's 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 really, really great advice. You know, the 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 most important thing is is to have a data driven approach to keep an open mind, typically what works is an integrated approach where you're doing all these things simultaneously, right? Or, and you're dialing them up and down depending on what's working and what's not. Um, and then, you know, being humble enough to fail fast. You know, I can't tell you how many companies I've seen just like light money on fire because they thought that selling in a certain way was the best way to do it and they weren't willing to hear any other suggestions. and the sales just weren't. The leads just weren't converting, you know. And, and and they refused to look at the data. It was always like, well, if you if we just hire this one more person, it's like no, like you don't need to hire anybody else. Like you you need to cut bait, and you know uh uh, uh you know recognize to yourself that 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 you failed at this, and let's try and get a better strategy in the future, and let's do another audit. Mm-hmm. So that's when it's time to do another audit when things aren't 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 going well, you know. Or you you've had a bunch of success early on, and then you know your 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 team scales right, and now you know you had one SDR who was closing a lot of business, but now you have five SDRs and you have to manage them, and and four of them are just not performing. That's mm-hmm. when it's time to do you know another audit, right? Because just because you have a sales process that works early on with the early adopters doesn't mean that scales as you try to cross the chasm, and you may need to tweak it. And so I think. People fail when they're not data driven. When they don't use the tools, get a CRM. You know, you don't have to spend. You don't have to buy a million dollar a year CRM. Like you can, you can do an unbelievable amount now for 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 free uh, with yeah. some of these early softwares. You know, so so because they have freemium model and they're just looking to, to hook you early, right? And and as your organization grows, you're gonna have to pay for it, right? So so mm-hmm. you know, like get yourself on a CRM as soon as you can. Get yourself to be really really. Get yourself to not listen to like your, what you think should work and and look at what actually works and what doesn't and allow yourself to be, you know, humbled because like, who cares? Yeah, okay, you had an assumption that was wrong. Like, who cares? Like, would you rather your company, would you rather drive your company into the ground because of it? uh, Because to preserve your ego, or would you rather like try and fix it? Like, it's not, so. And that's a lot of the, that's a lot of what VCs do, you know, like if your sales process isn't working, I'm going to tell you and like I'm not going to be I'm not going to mince words. And people like that, you know, they may they may feel a little bruised. Their ego gets bruised for like an hour, you know, and then at the end of the day, they're like, you know what, you're right. It's not working. You know, it's not you can look at the if you can look at the numbers, a lot of CEOs who, who deep down know their sales process is broken they refuse to to have a data driven approach because they're too scared they knew if they were looking at the data and someone else could inspect that data and call them out on it that they'd be toast right so they put up this sort of veneer of this like oh i don't need to look like this is this is how it is this is how it's going to be and you know they're just they th- those types of entrepreneurs are going to are going to if they don't if they don't course correct you know they're going to run their companies right into the ground
0: Right. And on this very, very positive note, we're coming out of the last <laughs> question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So what's the one thing you want to do as soon as the episode is over? The one thing I want people to do? Yes, the listener that's listening to this specific episode right now.
1: I think the most important thing listeners can do if you're truly interested in uh in sales there are great online tutorials for how to craft a cold email um there's a firm called sales folk that has great programming you know you can the the myth of the like natural born salesman you know the 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 sort of willie loman oh, yeah. like i'm born to be a traveling salesperson yes are some people naturally more gifted at it than others without question can anybody become a pretty good salesperson um, using these online tutorials? Absolutely. You may ask me, well, why would I wanna do that? Well, if you wanna be a CEO, right? You're gonna have to be a utility player, right? You're gonna have to be a generalist. and. So even though you may never have to be the best salesperson, you may never be driving sales, in order to recruit that person, you need to be intimately familiar with the question, what makes a good salesperson, right? And so I would urge everybody to do the work online. I've done done it, I've done a bunch of these tutorials, um, and they're fascinating, and they keep evolving. And the new new hotness, as we used to say in this space, is is account-based marketing. And so if you want to be at the bleeding edge, you know, become an expert in account based marketing, because what we're seeing now and technology is really helping us bridge the gap and get insights into this. We are seeing a coalescing of the practice that we used to call marketing and the practice that we used to call sales.